All right, good morning, City Light. Good morning, good morning. The Lord is holy, amen. Amen. So, hey, look, if you're new, before we jump in, I'd love for you to fill out that Connect card on your seat. It would help us help you get plugged in and engaged here. And so if you turn that in at the end, we will exchange a gift in return to you. And so please do that uh, so that you can get plugged in. You were made to exist within the body of Christ, and we want to help you become who God has fully intended that you would be. Uh, And so it's not just a connect card. It's your whole existence, all right? And it's a big deal. And so uh, go ahead and get plugged in. Uh, Today we're going to continue our theme of following through on the things the Lord has been teaching us experientially and giving biblically uh, sound roots to them. And for us to let the Bible lead the way as we navigate what the Lord continues to teach uh, us every week and every day. And so we're continuing to follow through. That is our goal doesn't matter just how you hit the ball, but it's how you follow through that determines where the ball goes. And so we have two more thoughts about follow through today. Uh, So go ahead and open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go. All right. Amen. I need to remember, okay, whoever's doing drums next week, all right, y'all just stick there. All right. We'll get us ready to go. All right. The Lord uh, is going to speak to us through his word. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warmed them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and here it is for us today, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we talked about worship defined by Jesus as in John 4, as worship that is done in spirit and in truth. And today, we get two more words from the Bible that when God thinks about worship, he thinks about it, and it should be done with reverence and in awe. Remember, the question is, what does God want? That's the question. What does God want? How does God want to be worshipped? This is the question we must answer for us to worship him appropriately 
as we gather and throughout our lives. And so we must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you missed that last week, please, very important. And if you, and today we must worship him with reverence and awe. And so in light of these two words and how God defines worship for us, we're going to see two more things to follow through on so that we can continue to become a place that offers acceptable worship to God. Remember, the goal is that God would look upon the earth and find city light as a group of people whose hearts worship him as he has asked so that he can pour out his spirit to work like he wants. And so if we want God to do great things, then we must do things God's way. And we want him to find us doing it that way so that he can pour out his spirit and do supernatural works in and among us. And so two things. The first is this. How do we follow through? Well, we must worship in a way that offers what is acceptable to God. So what is worship? Worship offers what is acceptable to God. These are all very important phrases. Worship offers what is acceptable to God. You see this phrase right here starting in verse 28. Let us offer to God. This time together is an offering to him, the entire thing, not just the moment where you decide to give. Your entire service, this entire time together is an offering to God. As a matter of fact, and what we'll see a little bit more next week is that worship is a lifestyle. It is an entire life dedicated to God. It is to offer God something. It is to bring God something. It is to recognize who God is, what God has done, and then respond appropriately to that. And so you come with something. You can't offer nothing. If you were going to offer money, there would be an amount. You would bring a way to do it. And so now to say, let us offer worship to God is to say and to consider, well, what are we bringing to him? What are we bringing? Am I bringing a grateful heart? Am I bringing awe and reverence for his holy name? Am I bringing respect to him? Am I, what am I bringing and offering to God? This is something we ought to consider so that worship isn't an ambiguous idea, but it's I am offering something to God right now in this moment. And you ought to consider through the Lord's help, what is it that I am offering to him? You know, I mean, if we think about it, you say, okay, the Lord has saved me from hell through faith in Jesus Christ. What do I give back to him? That's the question even of the scriptures. What do I return to the Lord? And the answer is our worship. It's our love, our adoration towards him. And so we, we must offer something to God. And so we're not just going through the motions. There's an intentional engagement to say, I am bringing this to you. You don't accidentally give money and you don't accidentally give worship. You don't thoughtlessly give money. You don't thoughtlessly give worship. In the same way you're considering an offering, you need to consider that for your whole life. What am I bringing an offering to God? What am I asking him to receive from me? Worship is an offering. Let us offer it to God. He says, then let us offer to God what? What's this word? This is a very important word. Acceptable worship. Remember, Okay, it doesn't matter what we think, and it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks. So I'm not going to define worship, and you shouldn't go to a church where the pastor does that. And you shouldn't define worship, and you shouldn't go to a church where the people do that. The Word of God defines worship. And so we say, okay, what, what do you want, God? What, what am I supposed to do, you know? 
What's acceptable? And the Lord says, okay, I want you to worship in a way that's acceptable to me. We must offer not what is acceptable to us, but what is acceptable to him. Worship is not about what is acceptable to you. I'm sorry, but God doesn't care. Worship is not about what you think you should do. Worship is about what is acceptable to God. What does this mean for us? This means that God determines how we relate to him. Not me, not you, not us. We must offer what is acceptable to God, but too often our filter for worship is what is acceptable to us. We walk into a room and our filter is, is this gathering acceptable in my sight? Is are the way that they are doing things acceptable to the way I would like to do things? Is this meaning acceptable to my personality and my preferences? And this is where churches and just Christian culture can go really awry because the question is not, God is not sitting there saying, well, what do you think? I'm sorry, but that's the truth. He's not asking and he's not concerned about that. God wants you to know what God thinks and then for you to alter your entire life according to that. So we do not offer what is acceptable to us. And I'm telling you, this is killing us as churches, as Christians, that we think, okay, I'm going to define worship by what is acceptable to me, by how I like it done. And this is not what God has asked for. And so therefore, practically, there must come a moment in our lives, and even every time we gather, where we lay down our preferences, personalities, cultural traditions, upbringings, and although those things matter, of course they do, it's a part of you. But we lay them down, we bring bring a blank slate to God, and we say, what do you want? What is acceptable to you in this moment? What is acceptable in your sight? And then we respond to him as he has said. And two ways he has said is that we must respond with reverence and awe. You do not relate to God on your own terms. This is very important because many people will die and go to hell because they thought they could relate to God on their own terms. And maybe you're watching online or you're in this room and you think you can relate to God on your own terms. You live your whole life deciding for yourself what will be acceptable to God. And therefore, you believe the lies that if you go to church enough, or if you're nice enough, or if you serve the poor enough, or if you're a decent enough person, or if your good works outweigh the bad ones, so on and so on and so on we go. You think these are your offering to God, and that these will grant you God's favor and entrance into heaven, but that is not how this thing works. God has not asked you what is acceptable to you. He has told you what is acceptable to him. And if you build a life... And if you bank your eternity on what you think is acceptable to God, you will miss the mark. This is very important because it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous for you to live a good life and to think that good is good enough. It's very dangerous for you to believe culture when they say the truth is whatever you make of it, you know? This is killing you, and it's killing the church, and it's killing people who even call themselves Christians. When we think, I come to church, and my filter, is this acceptable to me? And I live my life, and my filter is, well, God will accept what I think is acceptable. 
and the devil will lie into your ear all the way straight to God's judgment. God did not ask what is acceptable to you. He does not care. And I say that as gently and nicely as possible to help you. God is not concerned with your opinion about how to get to heaven. God doesn't care what you think about how sins get forgiven. It is not about your preferences, personalities, or ways of doing things. We must relate to God on God's own terms. So what is acceptable to God? Well, the only thing acceptable to God for the forgiveness of your sins is the blood of Jesus. The only thing acceptable to God is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I know the Lord is clarifying for so many of you, even in this room right now, that you, even with good intentions, have been trying to offer what is acceptable to you. And no matter how good your intentions are, they will be rejected if you do not offer what is acceptable to him. The only thing that can forgive your sins is the blood of Jesus. Not your good efforts, not your good works, not your church attendance, not your behavior, none of that. None of that. None of that is acceptable to God. The only thing that's acceptable to God is the blood of Jesus. And if you put all your trust in him, then God will accept you. Now, this is amazing because at first you may say, well, that sounds harsh. But listen to me. You know what's harsh is God putting a bunch of burdens and rules on you and saying, if you can abide by all of these rules and these laws, then you will reach some sort of standard of acceptability to me. And so try harder, keep up, give more money away, serve the poor, don't sin like that anymore. And then for you to constantly be trying to live up to that or even to live up to what the world says. Say, well, if you live this way, if you do this, if you do that, then you will live a life acceptable to whatever God you believe. That's burdensome. God comes along and says, you know what? What's acceptable to me is me doing everything for you. He says, that's what is acceptable to me. I do the work. I die for your sins. I rise from the dead. I save you by my spirit. If you would believe and trust in me, then you would receive salvation. And so why in the world are you continuing to bear the burden of what is acceptable to you when God wants to make you acceptable to him? This is called the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what the Lord wants to open your heart up to this morning. Maybe some of you for the first time. Maybe some of you as a reorientation of the way that you live your life. But we do not offer to God what is acceptable to us. But we offer to God what is acceptable to him. Which is why we need the word of God. Because we don't know without it. You know, your best thoughts, your best concepts of what God would want are going to fall terribly short of what God actually wants. And so we go to the word of God to know and to learn. So we do not offer to God what is acceptable to us, but what is acceptable to him. This is most important when it comes to the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of your soul. It is also very important in terms of how you relate to and interact with God, how you come to church, how you interact in times of worship together with the body of believers. Because we do not offer what is acceptable just to us. We also don't offer what's acceptable to everyone else. You know, and so you could come in here and raise your hands and be totally into it 
And we would think you're offering something acceptable to God. You look engaged, but God sees your heart and is far from him. And so you have offered something acceptable to all of us, and it literally doesn't matter because you haven't offered something acceptable to God. And so you have fooled all of us, but once again, what have you gained from that? And so the point is to come to the Lord with all your issues. He's not saying, well, come to him. And every time you come to him, you just have to be perfectly ready. Every, you know. And no, it's just to be honest and to come to him as you are with the things that you have and to receive what he wants to do in and through your life and to pursue a life of obedience to him. We do not offer what is acceptable to everyone else. We do not offer what is acceptable to ourselves. We only offer what is acceptable to God. And I can, we don't have time to walk through this. I'm going to give you two scriptural examples you can look at later. Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and Cain in Genesis 4. And this is a common problem throughout the Bible of people deciding for themselves what is acceptable to God. And then because they decided for themselves what is acceptable to God, instead of getting forgiveness and redemption, they get judgment. What an awful turn of events, you know? It's like you should have done it God's way in the first place. Right, And so Saul, the king of Israel, he goes and he defeats a, an army and he wins a battle, but he doesn't completely clean the slate like God asked him to. And so he comes back and you know what? He tells him, listen, this is what I got. This is what we did. And God basically says, that's not what I asked for. This is not what I asked for. I don't care how many sheep you have. You were supposed to kill them all. That's not the point. You didn't do what I asked for. And then the same thing happens with Cain. This is one of the first sins in the Bible. One of the first things of human nature is to offer to God what is acceptable to us and not what is acceptable to him. And so this is why you have Cain and Abel. Abel comes, he offers to God what is acceptable in two ways. One, it comes from the heart as a matter of faith. And in the second way is it's actually the first fruits. He puts God as the highest priority of his life. Cain comes along and he offers what is secondary and he doesn't do it from the heart. And so God looks at Cain and he says, you have not given me what I asked for. This offering, though may it be acceptable to you, it is not acceptable to me. How many of us in our lives are fooling ourselves or attempting to fool others by offering to God what looks acceptable to us but not what's acceptable to him? This is like if you went to a restaurant and you ordered a nice steak, you know, you're getting really excited and it's coming out and then the waiter comes out and he brings some grilled chicken on a salad. And you say, well, that's not what I ordered. And he says, well, I thought this was best for you. You could lose some weight. You should be a little healthier. <laughs> you know? You know red meat gives you heart attacks, right? You don't. He'd be like, I don't care what you think. Zero. And I paid for that food. And because I paid for it, I should get what I paid for. And how much more so is this true of Christ? who has bought you with his blood. And so Jesus says, because I have bought you with my blood, I must get what I have ordered. Not what you think I want or need. And God has ordered worship with reverence and awe. When he sits down at the restaurant of City Light Church, he has asked and ordered for us to come to him with reverence and awe. And to bring him anything else is to not bring him what he has asked for. 
So reverence and awe. So there's two characteristics and there's two reasons for this. So let me, the reverence and awe are the, are the, the, the characteristics. So what is acceptable worship? That's the question, right? For anybody who cares about doing things God's way, which I think is a lot of you, and hopefully the Lord takes all of your hearts in that direction, to say, I want to do what is acceptable to God. Well, he wants worship with reverence and awe. These are the two characteristics. Reverence is to treat with deep respect. And awe is to have a feeling of respect mixed with fear and wonder. And so reverence is the action. I decide to honor you. Awe is the feeling that comes alongside of that. I treat you with respect and I experience you with awe. This is what the Lord wants. And maybe sometimes we can't get to experience God with awe because we haven't treated him with respect. You want a supernatural encounter with God without obedience. That's not going to happen. You want to know his presence without being willing to follow his commands. That's not going to happen. We must treat him with respect to experience him in awe. But therefore, the goal of a real Christian meeting, the goal of a church gathering is awe, because awe is not man-made. We can't work that up. We can't manipulate you into that. Awe is a work of the Spirit to produce a right response to the revelation of who God is. This is what God is after, to say, if you are worshiping, if you are giving me your respect, you will experience awe, and you have truly encountered the Lord. This is what it means to gather together and worship. Here's something for you to write down, is that awe is the law of worship. Awe is the law. Awe is the goal. This is what we are using to define whether the gathering was useful or not. To say, did we experience awe with the Lord? Because if we experienced awe with him, that means that we saw him, that we encountered him, that we heard from him. To leave and thinking, well, that was a nice service means the preacher's pretty good and the band's okay. That's a nice service. Didn't make me upset. To leave in awe is to have met with God, regardless of anything else that went on during the service. The goal is not a nice service. The goal is an experience of awe. This is what God has asked for. This isn't my preference. This isn't the preference of City Light Church. This is what God has asked for, that our worship would be defined by an experience of awe. And if we want to experience awe with God, we must give him our respect. Not only on Sundays, but every day. Remember last, well, it was two weeks ago, when we talked about don't spectate, participate, that your role in this gathering is extremely important. And how you live Monday through Saturday is going to affect our corporate experience on Sunday. So if you're disrespecting God all week and then you try to facilitate an experience of awe in his presence, you're going to bring all of us down. Not to burden you with that, but to give you some concept and an idea that your relationship to God matters. Now, of course, you're not going to be perfect during the week. So it's not whether you perfectly knocked it out of the park. It's whether you recognized your sin, were repentant, and attempted to pursue Jesus. Were you honest with him? Were you living towards him? Or were you just blatantly running away from him? God's grace is sufficient to cover all of that for you, but for you to consider the, the blessedness and the experience of our gatherings is largely dependent on the kind of people we are Monday through Saturday. And you thought it was dependent on the quality of the message or how well the band played or whether the kids' ministry was any good or whether everything just seemed excellent. Those aren't the essential ingredients. It's you and me together. 
coming together to say we're going to gather under the word of God. We're going to pursue the Lord earnestly all the time as best we can. We're obviously going to fall short of that. We're going to accept his grace in the midst of our sin. We're going to confess our sin to one another so that there's going to be forgiveness of sins. And we're going to operate that way all throughout the week. So when we gather together, it's quicker and it's like the oven's already been heating up all week. And so instead of waiting 20 minutes to get to 375, we came in at 325 and now we just need a little bit more. You see what I'm saying? And now we're cooking. Shouldn't have to wait till the very end of the service to experience the heat of the Holy Spirit. That can happen from the jump if we're cultivating that kind of life throughout the week. Which is to put on front of you the responsibility that you have as a part of this church to come ready for God to work and to move. This is not dependent on how good I am at my job. It is not. It is not dependent on how well anybody does the things that they are supposed to do. That's certainly important. I'm not going to not put any effort into this. I'm going to give you the very best I got. But what's most important is how all of us come. And so to live and to say, I'm going to live in awe of the Lord. So you guys know this feeling. Hey, to make it less ambiguous, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you've been to Niagara Falls, any natural wonder, you get there and nobody has to say anything to you. The natural experience you begin to have in your soul is something called awe. It's so great so magnificent, so big, so overpowering, that when I encounter it and when I see it with my own eyes, I automatically respond with an experience of awe. And so it is so much more so with the Lord that as we come in here, if our goal together is to encounter the living God and to meet with him, then as we do, the more we see him, the more our hearts will love him. And therefore, if my heart ever makes it to a place of awe with him, that means I have encountered him by the word, through the spirit, working amongst the people of God. Awe is the law of worship. So two characteristics of worship are reverence and awe. Two reasons for acceptable worship are gratitude and fear. So just look, we're just, just using the Bible here for this. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So I want you to notice something just in terms of battle reading. The goal is reverence and awe, and then it's packaged within two reasons. So if you're reading the Bible and you're thinking, man, I really want to, I want to grow in reverence and awe with the Lord, and you begin to consider, well, how do I do that? Just look in the text, and when he says therefore or for, just start doing the math and say, okay, well, on the front end, so reverence and awe is the meat in the middle. The front end of it is gratefulness, and the back end of it is fear. Therefore, let us be grateful, boom, 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 offer acceptable worship, for our God is a consuming fire. And now instead of you trying to finish your Bible reading plan, you sit on that and you meditate. And you say, and reverence and awe are really important to God, and it seems like gratitude and fear are two essential aspects to that. And you pray, and you ask the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal the truth in your heart. And that's when your Bible reading turns into a time of meditation, and that's when meditation creates transformation in your heart. That's how you read the Bible. One, that's a good way to do it, okay? Not the only thing. Okay, so gratitude and fear. Now, this is, because this is fascinating, because it's going to create a sense of meditation, because it doesn't make sense. So look, let us be grateful, and apparently gratitude is the essential characteristic of experiencing reverence and awe which is not what you would say. You would put fear there or some other thing. But to this person, the entry point 
to the scriptures, what the scriptures telling us, the entry point into an experience of reverence and awe is gratitude. And boy, how many times have we said this now? Let us enter into his presence with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the trampoline. It sends you into this reality of God's presence. So how do I get to a place of reverence and awe? I start with thankfulness. And that's not naturally what you would do. You would think, well, I need to come in somber or afraid or fearful. I need to think about how bad I am and how evil my sins are. And if I think about those things, then I'll be reverent in awe and I'll be in awe. But it says, because we are grateful, then we offer to God fearful worship. Now, how does this work? So then if you're, if you're thinking, okay, how in the world does gratitude lead to reverence and awe? That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to you right off the bat. It shouldn't because that's not how. Gratitude is not the word I would pick. Say, if I want to be in reverence and respect, I'm going to choose thankfulness. You know? If you were in a meeting and you said, well, I wish you would be more respectful of me. And then they started telling you thank you. Say, I don't understand. You're supposed to obey, you know, like I'm asking you to do. Thankfulness. Okay, so what is it? What, what does gratitude have to do with reverence and awe? How are these things connected in the mind of the Lord? Well, the closest thing I could think about, and this is just sitting with it, right? So you're just meditating or asking the Lord, man, how does this work? Was you imagine like when you're in a car and you have a real close call and you hit the brakes, you know, and your wife's like, ah, what are you doing? And the kids are like, ah, you know, they're screaming and everybody's, ah, you know, and it's and there's like three seconds of terror because you realize you were too close. You hit the brakes as hard as you could. You're screaming and you ah, and you stop right there. And as soon as you stop, you go, oh my goodness, I'm alive, you know. But your heart's still beating so fast, you know. <laughs> you know? And your spouse is mad at you for not paying attention while you're driving, you know. And so you're afraid for multiple reasons at this point in time. <laughs> And the kids are like, ah, they've had a traumatic experience. But you're super happy. Why? Because you're alive. You thought you might be dead. You thought this could get real bad. For five seconds, you were in terror. But because the terror was relieved, you experienced a sense of gratitude and then the gratitude created a sense of awe and wonder that you're still alive. So at the very same time, you are experiencing gratitude and fear. And those are happening simultaneously. I think this is a little bit of what it's like to offer this kind of worship to God. I call it a trembling thanksgiving was the best way for me to consider. A trembling thanksgiving is to say... Oh, okay, I have come up close and personal with a holy God, and I am the wickedest person I know. I know all of the sin. I have so many sins, I don't even know about them yet. God's still reeling. I know myself more than I know you, and so I could judge you all I want, but I don't know the, the reality of your heart, and I know mine. And so I'm confronted with a holy God, and the truth that God must judge my sin, and the judgment from my sin is separation from God in a place called hell. All of that comes at me, and it creates terror, and I should be rightly afraid. But then in comes the gospel, and I receive the good news of Jesus, and then all of a sudden I'm saved, and I'm alive, and at the very same time, I'm terrified at who God is, but I'm happy I'm alive. 
I think this is what it means to have a gratitude that leads to reverence. It's a thankfulness that I'm alive that leads me to respect the rule of not looking at your phone while you're driving. I have more respect to pay attention. I have a greater sense of awe that I'm breathing, that I get to live another day. Why? Because I was afraid and my fears were relieved by grace. You see what I'm saying? So now, it is good to pursue the fear of the Lord and then to experience his grace in that place. To offer to God worship that has reverence and awe is to have a fear that's relieved by grace. And so some of us automatically assume all of the grace. We're not so bad. I'm on Jesus' team. It's cool that he saved me, but we were never really afraid. And some of us, we only live in fear. I'm an awful person. I know all the sins of my heart. How could God ever love me? And so we stay afraid. And when somebody preaches about hell, we say, yeah, that's right. And then we leave afraid for ourselves. And what the Lord wants us to do is have a fear relieved by grace. To appropriately consider who God is and then to be so happy that we're still alive. Oh, you are holy and I should be dead, but I'm alive. You know everything I've ever done and thought. And I deserve to go to hell for one of those things. And there's a million. I should be dead, but I'm alive. I see who you are, and you're perfect. I should not be allowed into a perfect place, but I am. This is fear relieved by grace. This is a trembling thanksgiving. This is how gratitude informs a sense of awe before the Lord. So the first reason is gratitude. The second is fear, like we just discussed, but I want to give you another perspective on it. Verse 29, so the front end, we enter in to reverence and awe via thanksgiving. The scriptures align. The back end here, we experience the fear of the Lord. Our God is a consuming fire. So this has basically double meaning at this point in time. Two things. One meaning is the consuming fire, that God is, uh, that God is judged and that God does see the sins of my life and that sin is no small thing and that although God loves me deeply, he will punish me greatly if I do not repent. My God is a consuming fire. He is not to be trifled with, played around with, or joked about. My God is a consuming fire. I will not take his name in vain or pretend like he doesn't see what I'm doing. My God is a consuming fire. He will not let go of things I do not repent of. My God is a consuming fire. I must rightly fear him and navigate my life in accordance with the judgment of God. At the same time, the picture of the scriptures does both things because, let me give you some examples. The God being a consuming fire is not only a sign of his judgment, but his presence and his guidance. Moses shows up and sees a burning bush. It is the presence of God that marks the, the beginning of the deliverance of the people of God. When the people of God are delivered from Egypt, they are led by a pillar of fire. A consuming fire leads them and gives, night, gives light to their path. The presence of God is a consuming fire. And so both at the same time, God is a consuming fire. I should be fearful of his judgment. God is a consuming fire. I can trust his presence and follow his leadership. And so if I follow his leadership, I don't have to be fearful of his judgment because I'm offering to God what is acceptable to him. Okay, so worship offers to God what is acceptable to God. 
We do not offer to God what is acceptable to us. We offer to God what is acceptable to him. Okay, the second thing to follow through with now is that worship receives what is offered from God. So worship offers what is acceptable to God, and worship also receives what is offered from God. And so you need to have both perspectives when you come on a Sunday morning and you gather with God's people or in a lighthouse or when you open your Bible to say, I'm going to offer something to God, and God is going to offer something to me. It's a relationship. And so the second part of worship is receiving what is offered from God. So let me go back. I want to look at verse 18 again, and we're going we're gonna to jump into some quick theology lesson. And so if you have glasses, you can put those on, make you feel smarter. Uh, put your thinking pants on, whatever it takes, all right? Lock in, okay, as we, as we close this time out. But I want to show you something very important theologically from the scriptures that's going to define and give uh, quality and wisdom to how your practical experience of worship plays out right now. So verse 18, let's go back. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest. Now, what he's talking about in these first few verses is Mount Sinai, which is where the people of God received the Ten Commandments, and it is where they first basically met with God after being delivered from Egypt. This is the first, night 18 through 21, are describing this situation that was so awful and terrifying that even Moses, who knew God face to face and is, is the greatest prophet other than Jesus, to live, he is terrified. That's how amazing this scene is. So this is Mount Sinai. And this is defined with fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, fear, and terrifying sight. But it says, you have not come there, but you have come to a different mountain, namely Mount Zion. And so Mount Sinai is where the people first encounter the Lord after they're delivered from Egypt. They get the Ten Commandments, and it kind of marks this whole season. And then the goal of the scriptures, big picture, and it happens in small ways, and then it happens ultimately at the end, is that the people of God make a journey from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. That's the journey you're on right now. And the people of God have been on it since Exodus 19 and 20. And so it's a journey from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion had two realities to it. First, it was the hill where the temple was in Jerusalem, during the time of the Old Testament. And so it was the place of God's presence, practically and physically. It was a physical location to mark where the temple was, which is where God would meet with his people. So that came to pass as they came into Jerusalem and built the temple. Then Mount Zion also has a prophetic edge to it, where not only was it a physical place that represented God's presence, but it's also the way that the Bible speaks about the future location of God's presence, namely heaven and heavenly Jerusalem. And so the people of God are doing both things. They're going from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, literally in this season of the Old Testament. And then metaphorically, spiritually, the people of God are going from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion throughout their lives as we prepare to enter into the heavenly Jerusalem with God. And so why is he doing all that? You know, like this says, like this is a lot of extra stuff here. Like, but it's here. Why, why is he setting that up? Well, because this is what he's doing. He's saying, you have not come to a place of darkness and gloom where the presence of God is vague and scary, but you have come to a place of light and love where the presence of God is revealed through Jesus. You see? And so now he's making this transition for the people of God to come out of Mount Sinai and the mindset of Mount Sinai, which is the law, and God is mad at me, and to come into Mount Zion which is the gospel, and God loves me. And some of you are trying to experience Mount Zion while you live on Mount Sinai. 
you're always worried about how well you're doing before God without ever enjoying the grace and the gospel of God. But this is what he's doing to help them understand how do you go to worship. So look, he says, you have not come to what may be touched, fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, fearful sound, terrifying sight. But, now watch this, it's like a crescendo. You have come, think about it, when you, when literally, he means this when you showed up and walked in those doors this morning. You have come to Mount Zion, you have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come to God who's the judge of all. You have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And you have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. This is what you are walking into when you come to church. Broaden your perspective to say, as I walk into church, I am not just coming to a church service, I am coming to a little taste of heaven. I am not just coming to a sermon, I am coming for a savior. And I expect, I expect, I expect to meet with the living God. I have not come to Mount Sinai where things are ambiguous, scary, and dark, and the presence of God is terrifying, but I have come to Mount Zion where the gospel sets free and God loves me. Now look, as you worship God, you enter in to these amazing realities here. I want you to go home and read this like a hundred times. Write this down. To worship is to step in to the realities of heaven. Okay, broaden our perspective. To worship is to step in to the realities of heaven. It is an action on the prayer in Matthew 6, on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we come into worship, and even as we do it here, we come in and we say, Lord, in 2929 Graham Road, Falls Church, February 13th, 2022, may it be right here as it is in heaven. And you come in with that expectation and that desire to say, I am coming in and I can imagine and see innumerable angels gathering, worshiping the Lord. We are joining in on that. This is no small thing. Listen to me. Worship as a gathering of believers, you need to write this down, makes touchable that which is untouchable. And this is so important, please. It takes a spiritual reality and it applies it to your senses. You see? And so you have not come, he says, to what may be touched. Meaning Mount Sinai was a physical location. They had, they had a physical interaction, very physical. But you have come to this more of a spiritual reality with Mount Zion that you can't quite see yet like that. But when you come together as God's people... What happens in the gathering, this is why this is so important. This is why you should read the Bible for yourself and gather in lighthouses and come to church like this. It's because when we gather together like this, we take that which is untouchable, which is Mount Zion, and we bring it down from heaven onto earth so it can affect us as we are right now. It takes a spiritual reality, which is angels and heaven and the blood of Jesus, and it's stamps it right into your body so you can feel it, know it, and respond to it. 
To come here is to expect the realities of heaven to be felt within the senses of my body, to be felt within my mind, to be felt within my heart. It is to say what is spiritual and feels kind of out there becomes so unbelievably real when we come together. That's why there's so much value in this time is to say when we gather together, something supernatural happens and that which is untouchable, Mount Zion and the city of the living God becomes touchable on 2929 Graham Road or in your lighthouse or when you worship together with your family or friends. We must broaden our perspective. I'm going to point you in a direction and not preach it because I need to be done with my sermon. But Galatians 4 does this all over again. So if you want some extended study, Galatians 4 basically compares two women, two mountains, Mount Sinai, which is Hagar, which is the child of slavery with Isaac, and then Mount Zion, which is Sarah, which is the child of, or Ishmael is the first one, sorry, which is the child of freedom, which is Isaac. And he walks you through basically the experience of the Christian life is one under Mount Zion as a child of freedom. Therefore, do not live under Mount Sinai as a child of slavery. That's the whole point. And so when you come into a worship gathering, what you are doing is expressing the freedom you already have, not expressing the level of freedom you're feeling. This is where theology matters. I'm going to come in, and God has already told me, through faith in Jesus, I am a child of Sarah. I am a part of the kingdom of God. I am a part of the free people of God. So I come in, and I express the freedom that I have, not the freedom that I feel. I come in, and I live according to what I am, not what I think I am. And so go ahead and read that out later, but it's going to help you. Okay, finally, as we close, this final word from the middle, it says, do not refuse him who speaks. What a fun, what a great way to end the, to say, okay, this is the Lord, and he has said all of these things, and anything I have said that has been what he has said is exactly what you should listen to. And so do not refuse him who speaks. If judgment is certain when you refuse his earthly voice, how much more so when you refuse his heavenly voice? And through the word of God, the Lord has spoken from heaven. Are you offering to God worship that's acceptable to you or worship that's acceptable to God? Do not refuse him who is speaking. Do you come into his presence with a gratitude that creates reverence and awe? Do not refuse him who is speaking. The worship that God expects and has ordered is spirit and truth and reverence and awe. How might you need to respond to Jesus today for some of you, you need to respond with faith for the right time. Let me give you a final illustration of this. You have come to the right place, church, but now you need to come to the right person, Jesus, because church won't save you. Neither will my sermon. You have come to the right place, but now you need to come to the right person. It's like when you order on your app and you go to the right per place, you go to the right restaurant, but you got to look for the right name. And until you found the right name, you won't get what you came for. 
And so it is with you this morning. You have come to the right place. You have come to church. You have come to a gathering of God's people, but that's not enough. You need to find the right name. And the right name is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to save you is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to help you is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to change your life is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to heal your soul is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to forgive your sins is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to give you peace that passes understanding is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to provide the purpose you've been looking for is Jesus. And the only thing that's going to provide everything your soul has been longing for is Jesus. You have come to the right place. Now please come to the right person. It's Jesus. Let me pray and let's respond to him now. Lord, we come to you. I pray for all of us, Lord, especially those who don't know you, that they would come to you this morning, that through being at City Light, Lord, that they would meet Jesus. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would remember we didn't come here, Lord, just for church. We came here for you. We came here to meet Jesus came here to hear from Jesus. We came here to worship Jesus. We came here to love Jesus. We came here to be corrected by Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that this place, Lord, would be set aside as a place where people can come meet the person, Jesus. For your anointing on even this physical building, that it would be a place where people meet the person, Jesus. That everything done in our ministries, in this building and outside of it, would be done so that people can meet Jesus. That our desire in coming to church week in and week out was so that we could meet and hear and love Jesus. Make us a people who don't love the place, but who love the person of the place. And may you keep City Light as a place that prioritizes the person of Jesus. Give us reverence and awe, Lord, as we worship. Make us a people of reverence and awe. I pray that as you look upon the earth, you would see city light and that you would find people who are giving you what you have asked for and that you would pour out your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray in agreement. We all say amen, amen. Why don't you stand up? Let's respond to the Lord.